Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. We're back with another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And John, we have a guest with us today, Tom Strong. Hi, Tom. Hey, hi. How are y'all? Good to have you with us. In order to uh, prepare for this podcast, you recommended we read your book. We have, and it's a good one. And I have to chuckle, Tom, because along with all your accomplishments, you're a, you're a humble guy. When I first invited you to the podcast, you said, thanks, but I'll have to pass this up. And here's your quote. I'm 89 years old. I've been retired for 17 years. I doubt that my experience of a generation ago would be enlightening to today's lawyers. And then I found out you wrote a book only, what, about nine years ago? I wrote it, yeah, when I was 80. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic book. You know, a lot of times we chuckle about lawyers telling their war stories, but we don't mind so much if they're good war stories. And your book is filled with those, but also it's a time capsule in a sense because you've lived through so much change in the field of lawyering, especially trial lawyering. And in fact, you blaze the trail in many ways. So thanks again for joining us. Let me mention a few things about you to those who might not be familiar with you. Born in 1931, you went to the University of Missouri at Columbia School of Law. You were a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, where John Simon is now also a member. You founded the firm of Strong, Garner, and Bauer, and uh, you've been the president of numerous legal associations, including the Missouri Association of Trial Lawyers, Missouri Board of Law Examiners, Springfield Metropolitan Bar Association, You've done a lot of things, and uh, I'd refer people to your website to get the full view of some of the many things that you've been involved in. You've given hundreds of continuing education lectures. And back in 1988, you gave one, and a fellow named John Simon was sitting in the audience. And John, you want to take it from there? First of all, Tom, I want to thank you so much. It is an honor, and, and I mean that, to have you on our podcast. You don't know me as well as I know you, But I followed your career for as long as I've been practicing, and you've been a mentor of mine without realizing it. Your career is just phenomenal, not just in terms of the skill and the things that you've accomplished, setting the standard for integrity and ethics and professionalism, and really showing us all that you can get good results and do it all the right way. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for being on the podcast. You know, I started practicing in 1986, and I was at a defense firm, one of the biggest firms here in St. Louis had been there a couple years, and I I snuck away or snuck into probably a MATA seminar. It was at the MATA convention in 1988, and it was the first one I had gone to. The speaker there was a man named Tom Strong, and so this had to be, what, probably 33 years ago or so, and I listened, Tom, to you speak, and it seemed like you were talking right to me, and I mean, everything that you said just resonated. I mean, it just hit me. After I listened to you, I left there And I'd always thought about maybe doing plaintiff stuff, and that was it. I mean, after that day, I really started looking, and about a year later, I left and started doing plaintiff stuff. I remember you commenting, the most important thing for me in that courtroom is my reputation, because I worked so hard to build it. You want to hold it and keep it. And, you know, 33 years after I first heard you speak, I've received the great honor uh, last year, and I'm going to be receiving it this year, of receiving the Tom Strong Award from MATA. And I'm just humbled and honored by that. Well, you've made my day with this comment. When you can touch someone, you've um, made an impression on the next generation. So when I hear stories like that, 
and know the success that you and others have had, it, uh, it warms my heart. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Tom, from your position today, looking back at it, how does that feel to have done all those things, lived through a era in particular where you ran from the early days of what you call ambush law, where lawyers you know, ran into the courtroom and nobody knew what was going to happen and you mixed it up to the present era where there is now discovery, where you have a lot of people who carefully research each other's case. Can you give us some just general reactions about what it was like, what it is like to look back at that and see all those big transitions that happened in your life? Well, yes. Of course, when I started practicing law, they had a doctrine called contributory negligence. And it meant that if an injured person was partly at fault uh, for his or her own injuries, he or she received nothing. And so, you know, if you were a pedestrian who was injured walking across the street but not on the crosswalk and was hit by a car, uh, you were, according to the jury perhaps, 1% at fault, you got nothing. It was a horrible doctrine and prevented many, many people from recovering serious injuries when they were not very much at fault. That has been replaced, of course, by comparative fault, a great improvement. Back when I practiced law, we had an unconscionable doctrine called remitter, where over 25% of any jury verdict was remitted in part by either the trial court or a court of appeals. The most prominent example I can mention probably is a 1964 case that went up to the Supreme Court of Missouri. A 16-year-old boy was rendered quadriplegic in a railroad negligence case. The jury awarded that quadriplegic $270,000. The Supreme Court of Missouri said, it's too much for a youngster with a life expectancy of over 52 years and remitted that verdict down to $220,000. Wow. So it's just horrible. When I started practicing law, we had a wrongful death statute that allowed the survivors of a person who was killed $15,000 maximum. So, you know, if um, Elon Musk was in Missouri at that time, or his equivalent, and was killed, his survivors could recover a maximum of $15,000. And to add on insult to injury, you never knew who your opponent witnesses were going to be. So if you were suing, those days it was impossible to sue someone like Ford Motor Company for a defective product. But if you were, you could march into court and Ford could bring its experts in. They would all be tall and handsome and movie star type presentations. And you'd know nothing about them. You'd have no way to research them. You'd have no way to know that they had written when they were in uh, getting their PhDs, an article that was directly opposite of what they were testifying to. It was trial by ambush, and it was a horrible uh, time to practice law in those days if you were a plaintiff's lawyer. Plaintiff's lawyers were considered the scum of the profession. It was very, very difficult to make a living as a plaintiff's lawyer. So it was just a bad time to be in our profession. So I've seen those changes. And I've seen the lawyers who were good in the ambush days not being able to transfer their talents when the changes came. 
In those days without television very much, people would come to the courtroom for entertainment. So many of the lawyers uh, were entertainers more than they were strategists, in-depth, get down to the nitty-gritty and know your case backward and forward. They were actors on a stage to some extent. And when the changes came, they became less and less effective, and some of them just went into other work. One of the things that I was really interested and impressed with, I couldn't put it down, was the innovations. You know, so many things that you tried that hadn't been tried before. The one that comes to mind, and I, I don't know if I've got this guy's name correctly, Mad Max, was it? <laughs> you, you did the, the accident. Was Did I get it right? Mad uh, Max? Crazy Max. Crazy Max. Okay, Crazy yeah. Max. Tell us, if you would, please, about that. That was just terrific. I had a client come with the story about this young man who was driving from St. Louis to Springfield, Missouri, had a pickup truck towing a Thunderbird vehicle. And in those days, the highway was old Route 66, curvy, hilly, dangerous place, and two-lane. So it was a dangerous place to drive, particularly a dangerous place to pass. Well, they were towing this old Thunderbird back with their rather old, undersized motor pickup truck. In the uh, pickup truck was the driver and then my client. And as they were uh, coming to Springfield, they were behind a very slow old lady driving an old car. This young kid was not used to driving that slow. So they searched and they searched, and finally they could see a stretch of road. And here they were going to pass this lady. So they pulled out to pass. He gunned his pickup truck, and slowly, slowly, slowly it gained speed. When it was just about almost alongside the car it was passing, lo and behold, here around the corner comes a car. No way this truck was going to get back in the after passing the car. So he put on his brakes, put them on hard to get back behind the car, and lo and behold, he ended up in the ditch. What was to happen? Well, of course, the driver had very little insurance. I went up to look at the um, vehicles, and I took with me my friend, an engineer, MIT engineer, by the way, in Springfield, Missouri. His name Saul Nusatelli. And we were looking at the um, vehicles and the tow bar. And the tow bar had paint on it from the hood of the Red Thunderbird vehicle. And the Red Thunderbird vehicle had a dent in its hood. Obviously, to me, the T-bar had come in contact with the hood. How could that happen? And I said, Saul, the Thunderbird had to run under this little pickup. The pickup's back wheels had to be off the pavement. And if that's true, you can't drive a car if your two front wheels are all that's on the pavement. So the driver had no control over his vehicle. So that's why he went in the ditch. The tow bar manufacturer, we've got to look into this. The um, Thunderbird weighed more than the pickup. So when the pickup put on its brakes, the Thunderbird's mass went under the pickup, I reasoned, and that's why we lost control. 
Now, how was I going to prove this? Well, here comes the part about Crazy Max. Bill Barkley, a friend of mine, I was telling him about this, tell him I needed someone to recreate this collision. And he said, uh, well, you might talk to Crazy Max. I won't tell you his last name. I think he might even still be alive. And so I met Crazy Max. And I said, uh, Max, we have this Thunderbird. The Thunderbird was in good condition. You could tow it. What we need is a pickup truck. It was totaled. So I found a pickup truck, same age, same model, same engine as the one that was in the collision. And I said, Max, what I need you to do is to drive this pickup truck, towing the Thunderbird, get it up to 55 miles an hour. That's a testimony of how fast our driver was going and put on his brakes, put them on hard. So I said, Max, I must warn you, I think that you'll, I think you'll turn over if this happens. Max said, yep, uh, I think I will. And I said, well, Max, will you do it? <laughs> and Max said, well, I'd have to be paid. <laughs> and I, I said, well, Max, how much would you charge me? And Max said, well, I'd have to have $100. And I said, well, Max, you're on. So at that time, there was a drag strip, concrete drag strip, same texture as Highway 65 between Springfield and Ozark. So I rented the drag strip. And in those days, of course, your cameras were not sophisticated, but you had real motion and slow motion cameras. So I got two of them. And Max got in the pickup, towing the Thunderbird, and down the drag strip he goes. It's a burden for this little pickup to get up to 55 miles an hour. But he got up there before the drag strip ran out. He applied his brakes, and just exactly what happened on 65 happened on that drag strip. Within three feet of the same skid marks were laid down by crazy max he rolled over and then all of us watching held our breath and the pickup was on its side the driver's door was in the air the passenger door was on the ground and here after a second or two a minute or two comes crazy max out of the driver's window and he sits on the shell after he gets out and he waves his arms fist in victory he did it so we're in the trial and here we have big bob this lawyer from i think he was from chicago big time lawyer coming to represent the tow bar company you know i've given my opening statement i don't tell him this is trial by ambush i don't tell him about the uh, recreation I just tell him my theory that what I think happened. So Big Bob in his opening statement says, what Strong told you happened cannot happen. It's a physical and scientific impossibility. And I have retained this MIT professor and he has this formula he will explain to you. It's a long formula that fills up a blackboard. 
where he's plugged in the weight of the um, pickup truck, the weight of the Thunderbird, the speed of the vehicles. He's even plugged in the weight of the passengers. And it is a scientific impossibility for this Thunderbird to lift the back of the pickup truck off the ground. So here we go, and now I'm putting on my evidence. I will not call Crazy Max as a witness. I cannot depend on him. But Saul Nusatelli witnessed this, and so he was on the stand, and he was explaining to the jury how he recreated this um, accident. And he explains that he put bags of sand to duplicate the weights of the people in the vehicles and recreated the speed, and he could time the speed with a stopwatch to show that uh, Max was going 55 miles an hour. And of course, um, trial by ambush, Big Bob didn't know any of this, and we offered in evidence our video. And the video, slow motion video, showed that the back of the pickup truck, the wheels of the pickup truck, were lifted approximately a foot and a half to two feet off the ground, just exactly like we had told the jury it happened just as we said. Now, what was this MIT guy going to do now? Well, Big Bob was pretty darn concerned because anything that that formula showed would be rebutted by a video. So Big Bob asked for a recess, and he got on the phone. And he came back and he said, I have an offer for you. Well, I told him to cram it. So he went back and after two or three calls, the trial was over and we'd settled our case. Now you might think this is the end of the story, but there's a post log here. About a month after this trial, Bill Barkley, who had told me about Crazy Max, came to my office. He said, Tom, I was at this rodeo down at Chadwick, Missouri over the weekend, and Crazy Max was there. And Crazy Max, uh, he was going to do some kind of a stunt. We knew that. And they were putting up a ramp. And the end of the ramp that was off the ground was be about six, seven, eight feet above the ground. And it became pretty obvious to everyone that Crazy Max was going to drive his motorcycle up that ramp and jump over something. But the trouble was, the ramp was pointing at the crowd, <laughs> not the other way. What were these guys doing? So someone was starting down to tell him, point the ramp the way it ought to be pointed. And here comes Max on his motorcycle, roaring down, up the ramp, and right into the crowd, except in front of the crowd was a hog wire fence. So... The crowd was ducking and screaming, but Max crashes into the hog wire fence about 20 feet above the ground, falls down on the ground, and he's not hurt. And he comes up <laughs> wow. waving the victory sign. <laughs> so Bill said, that's what happened, Tom. And you know what Max charged for doing that? $25. He cheated you out of $75. That's the end of the story. Tom, I think he still earned that 100 <laughs> Yeah, he did. He was worth it. 
Yeah. Wow. What a great story. You mentioned in your book that he's not entirely crazy. He asked for a seatbelt for your uh, demonstration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. In those days, we didn't have seatbelts. And uh, Crazy Max said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to have a seatbelt. So we installed him a seatbelt. So, Tom, in those days, how often would you see a plaintiff lawyer go out, buy a duplicate product, and conduct a demonstration, film it? Were you the first one you ever saw, or were, were there others out there at that point? Oh, I never heard of anyone doing that. The closest thing that ever came to that was one of my earlier cases where I had someone ride on the top of a car. But no, that, that was unheard of. Tom, tell us about that, riding on the top of the car. Well, I was just out of the counterintelligence corps and was beginning my practice. And I was with uh, the firm of Ferrington and Curtis at that time. Our client was killed when he was riding on top of a car. He was spread eagled on his face, on his chest, riding on top of this car. And they were going down to Vision Street. Division Street, all the cross streets had these little water gullies. So every time uh, you would cross a street on Division Street, you would go over bumps that were caused by these water drains that were going across, perpendicular across Division Street. So it was pretty obvious at one point the driver had gone over one of these bumps and had thrown uh, Marvin, was his name, off the top of the car. Well, Marvin was killed. And he had a um, double indemnity insurance policy if this was an accidental death. So they brought the case to E.C. Curtis, my senior partner, and he said, ah, that's no accident. If you get on top of a car, you ought to foresee that you can be thrown off. And that's the test was at that time, I think still is, if your actions can foreseeably result in injury or death, it's not an accident. So you're out of court. So EC didn't want anything to do with it. But I was kind of intrigued by it. And so I asked EC if I could take the case. And he said, yes. So I learned this is what happened. Marvin Ward and two of his buddies had been to a bar after work and they had uh, been drinking beer and playing shuffleboard and drinking buckets of beer and so they were all pretty tipsy and the driver and the passenger when they came out of the bar about midnight Marvin instead of getting in the car crawled up on top of the car and they said Marvin get out off the top of the car or you're going to get thrown off Marvin said, this is the only way I'm riding. So here they start off. Don't make him get down. They start off with him on top of the car. And their windows are down. It's summertime. So he's kind of holding on by putting his hands in the windows, upper windows, hanging on to the passenger window and the driver's window. So they go down on Division Street, probably going too fast. No one knows. And Marvin comes off the top of the car and is killed. And my theory was that Marvin had no reason to think that he was in jeopardy on top of that car. 
He was a young, strong, six foot two, uh, 180 pounds of muscle. He was a lineman for the telephone company, climbed the poles, carried a 50, 100 pounds of stuff up the poles with him to repair things. So he was a strong guy. And his two buddies had been um, deer hunting with him on several occasions. And he'd be on the back of the um, truck and standing up, uh, holding on. They knew that he was uh, very athletic. And his widow, now his widow, talked about one time when they were on Glenstone Street and Marvin actually rode on top of a car just as he was riding when he was killed. So he had some experience and in that case had no reason to believe that he was going to be injured or killed. These were his buddies driving and he thought that they would give him a safe ride, I claimed. So how was I going to prove that this was an unforeseeable accident to Marvin? Well, I grew up on a little rock pile we call a farm, 20 acres. And across the road and up the road was um, a young man about my age. Name was Rollo. And so I said, I'm going to hunt down Rollo. I think he's about 6'2". So I called Rollo in. And I said, Rollo, how tall are you? I'm 6'2". How much you weigh? I'm about 185 pounds. Ah, you're perfect perfect. What I'd like for you to do, (laughs) I would like for you to get on top of my car, wind is down, hold on tight, and see how safe it is up there. So we start out, and we start out at five miles an hour, and we're on the country roads. We're not in Springfield. We're going over bumps, and I get up a little faster and a little faster. And Rollo doesn't have any problems staying there. So part of my evidence is by a policeman. And the policeman is talking about the marks on top of the car. There are two marks, rubber marks, down uh, where we claim the feet would have been. So as the driver was driving Marvin's car when he was killed, Marvin's boots, work boots, were making those marks. There was a greasy spot up where I claimed his head was. And there were scratch marks where I said his buckle was. So the point of of the policeman's testimony was that Marvin was in contact with the top of that car all the way up until he was thrown off. And so... It wasn't like uh, he was so drunk he wasn't holding on. He was holding on tight. So Rollo is testifying now about his experience. And under the cross-examination, Glenn Burkhart is asking him, why didn't you do this on Division Street? And Rollo said, well, I I expected the police might not like it if they saw us, so we didn't do it. On Division Street. We did it out in the country, but out in the country, we had some pretty bad roads. They were all dirt roads and had a lot of washes in them. So we figured that it was just as dangerous out there as it would have been on Division Street. So the final question was, how much did Mr. Strong pay you to ride on top of that car? Pay me? 
He didn't pay me. He just asked if I'd do it, and I'd done it. <laughs> so that's the story about the accidental death case, which, by the way, brought on, I suspect that I represented uh, maybe a dozen accidental death cases because of that. One of them went to the Supreme Court of Arkansas, by the way. So um, that was another experiment. That wow, my... you've got some good friends. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, if I could circle back, when your friend was on top of the car for the experiment, how fast did you drive? Oh, I'm, I might have driven 35 miles an hour. My understanding from your story in the book is that you were in constant communication with him up on top of your roof to make oh, sure yeah. everything's okay. Oh, yeah. I was asking, Rollo, how you doing up there? I'm doing fine. Yeah. You know, I can't think of a better way for a young attorney to become well-known. I assume that just spread through the community like wildfire after you pulled that one off. Yeah. Yeah, it did. There was a lot of controversy about it. It's unethical. I mean, uh, Strong was exposing uh, someone to injury or death. It was pretty unethical for him to do that. Others thought it was audacious, creative. So take your pick. What was the defense reaction in terms of objections when you wanted to bring this demonstration into the courtroom? There were no objections, yeah. It just came on in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back in the run and gun era, the ambush law, I'm assuming there were a lot fewer objections to things that were just brought in. Could you talk about that? Well, yes. Of course, a lot of things happened. You didn't know what was going on, so a lot of things were out there in front of the jury before a lawyer knew what was happening. So uh, the objections were late, and the judge often would say, disregard that last statement. It'd be like telling a child to sit in the corner and don't think about a white elephant, you know. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't worry so much in those days about objections. Tom, could we go back and talk about what was your family like and uh, where'd you grow up and under what circumstances? I grew up under the very best circumstances anyone could imagine to be um, uh, a lawyer. My mother was college educated, which was very unusual in the 1920s. My father graduated from uh, what is now Missouri S&T. In those days, it was Missouri School of Mines and Metallurgy considered one of the five best engineering schools in the nation at that time. He uh, graduated and took a very coveted job with Johnson Engineering's in Boston, Massachusetts. So this young family had every right to think that they were going to be prosperous and successful. But in 1931, the um, Depression was hitting really, really hard. And on top of the Depression, my father came down with some kind of an illness that lasted the rest of his life. The symptoms appeared like a stroke victim symptoms. He was significantly paralyzed on his left side, walked with a very distinct limp. His left arm and hand were very rigid, and he trembled like a Parkinson's victim, had a tremor. So because of his disability, which came about the time I was born, just a few weeks before I was born, as a matter of fact, on December 6, 1931, he was out of a job. So we were in Boston without a job. And when I was two months old, 
they came back to my father's parents' farm in uh, Webster County, Missouri. We were destitute. My mother finally got a job after a year and a half at a one-room school, teaching eight grades in a one-room school. As time went on, she uh, went to another one-room school, and by the time I was four, she was teaching at Bennett School. Eight grades, $65 a month, $520 a year, not an hour, a year. And so we were poor, even by depression standards. And of course, my mother was the, the wage earner. And she was everything at that school. She was the janitor. She swept up. She was the music teacher. She directed the Christmas play. And she taught about a dozen students in eight grades. And I was one of her students. It was a great way to learn. Because when I was in the first grade, I could hear her teaching the second grade and the third grade. And when I was in the third grade, I could hear her teaching the sixth grade and the seventh grade and the eighth grade. So I think the three R's of education are not reading, writing, and arithmetic, but are repetition, repetition, and repetition. So I came out of that uh, of my mother's school with a very fine education. In 1943, my grandfather died and my mother inherited 20 acres. We call it a farm, but it was pretty much a, a, a rock pile. But it had a house. The house wasn't much better than the one we were living in. The bathroom was outside, we hoped downwind. And we got water from a hand-dug well over on Aunt Leona's uh, portion of what she inherited. And when I was in the the summer after my seventh grade, I rode a bicycle a mile up the road to Roy Rawlings' farm and helped him milk 21 cows. I worked morning and evening, seven days a week, and was paid $7 for the week. And here I was, uh, what would I have been, 12, 13 years old. At the end of that summer, I had enough money to buy a cow. So I bought a cow, and I started selling milk. Mr. Thompson uh, ran a milk route where he'd pick up milk, take it to Highland Dairy, so you'd get a little paycheck. As time went on, I had enough money to buy a second cow, third cow, and a fourth cow. So by the time I got to college, I had enough money to go to college. And by the time I graduated from what is now Missouri State, I had $2,000, sold my cows, and went to law school. The first year I was in law school, I spent $930 for tuition, books, board, and room, and a dollar or two for Christmas presents. The second year, I spent $960 for all those same items. The third year, I was about broke, but... I was fortunate because they hired two of the top law students to teach business law in undergrad. So I, I got to teach business law in the undergrad my senior year, and I was paid $1,500 for that. So by the time I graduated from law school, not only did I have no debt, I had money. I bought my first car. I didn't have a car when I went to law school. I didn't have a car when I went to Missouri State. 
So I didn't have very many dates. I, you know, I wasn't a man about town by any means, but uh, I was frugal. I took care of my money and I had $400. And so I, when I was inducted into the army and went into the counterintelligence corps, I was chomping at the bit to get out and practice. I wanted to practice law and I could get in the counterintelligence corps for two years. And that's what, that's what it did. So I, I began my practice in 1957. So Tom, before we, we go, I would like to ask you, what advice would you give today's attorneys? I've been asked that a lot of times, and my answer has always been there are three things that I would suggest you do. Number one is work hard. Number two, work hard. Number three, work hard. If you work hard and you work the right way, if you work uh, ethically and professionally, you will do fine. Fantastic. Well, Tom, thank you again for joining us on this episode. It's, it's been terrific. It was wonderful spending time with you and uh, listening to you. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much. We'll be back with part two with Tom Strong on a future episode. But for now, this has been The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.